Hello, fellow non-existent beings, and welcome to Idle Prattle! I'm your disembodied voice, Eden. Join me in observing the grand, ineffable wonder of ordinary things as I sail you down my stream of consciousness. Let's swim in the nonsense, drift and float on an ethereal boat of refulgence. If a podcast gets uploaded and no one listens to it, does it make a sound? This podcast is dedicated to you, who are drawn to listen to it. On today's episode... Eden pours a sparkling water. <laughs> okay. All right. So, in trying to keep with the theme of my last episode, where I read The Case Against Babies by Joy Williams, and to also kind of keep my casual promise of visiting the the pronatalist side of the conversation, um, this episode is basically a continuation of last episode. You can just consider this part two um, because I don't like breaking promises, <laughs> however casual they may seem it's, it's like hey I thought she was gonna talk about like the other side to be all fair and balanced or whatever and, and then I just move on to just something that interests me more but I didn't do that I mean I still kind of break my promise on a technicality but I don't feel like it was my fault <laughs> really hard to find somebody, anybody, who had written an uh, an article, maybe I needed to sift through blogs, I don't know, I could not find an essay or anything on um, why some someone wanted to be a parent. I guess I could have looked for, you know, my experience with in vitro or we went to China to adopt. So you, those I could have looked for one of those niche, nuanced, you know, conversations. But I really wanted to address the bigger picture, which is essentially why are we here, right? Everybody's big question: What are we all doing here? <laughs> we're dying, is what we're doing. Um, but. I, I I wanted to find somebody from the opposite side of the conversation to like really tell me why you want the responsibility, the burden, the heartache of having a human taking care of a human from start to maybe finish. 
Maybe you won't be there for the finish line. Jenny, talking to you. Um, <laughs> I have to make dark jokes. Please allow me these dark jokes. It's how I get through this shit. So I was actually getting kind of frustrated because I couldn't find... Is it just that mainstream or it's just like that like... That oh, we just have babies. We just bring humans in here like nobody thinks about it. I find that people do think about it because I was able to find a subreddit where people were sharing why they had kids. But I wasn't able to find like the actual, you know, fancy writings about it on the topic, you know. So if you're listening to this and you want to have a kid, please write about that. I would love to read or pick your brain on the subject. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway, I was, I was having, I was very frustrated with the search of trying to find someone who would share their perspective. Yeah, I, the, the subreddit thing came at the end of my labor, but I... I was sitting at my computer, just like, I'm not, I obviously I can't do this episode because it's just going to turn into me getting preachy about why people shouldn't exist and why humans suck and just being, you know. When I remembered that I have an actual book, a real live book with words <laughs> that I can hold in my hands. On uh, it's it's an anti-abortion book. Eden, why do you have an anti-abortion book when you've had abortions? Um, because it's important to me to listen to all sides of the argument, and also when I got a divorce, uh, apparently my ex-husband didn't want any of his books, <laughs> and uh, and this was. This was his dad's, his dad's book, and when I say his dad's book, I mean his dad wrote it. It's uh, it's called The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, and it's it's actually I think it's a I don't know if you would call this a textbook or maybe like a handbook guidebook for I think specific specifically Christians to help them with the anti-abortion slash pro-abortion debate, um, I was like, hey, that that's kind of serendipitous. That kind of is harmonious. I have a book that literally argues for having humans. Um, I didn't want to, it's a, it's, it's not a long book, but it, I wasn't going to read a whole book on my podcast. <laughs> But I was sifting through the case for life, and chapter 11 really jumped out at me. And if you listened to the previous episode, you'll know why. Chapter 11 is literally called The Tolerance Objection. You shouldn't force your views on others. So if you listened... In the last episode, I had a lot of, like, hesitation and confliction and just, ooh, you know, mixed feelings about putting that 
thing out there and aligning myself with a very unpopular opinion, so unpopular that the other side of the conversation doesn't write essays about it. What? What? <laughs> they write books. <laughs> um, I came out of reading that chapter very much inspired to kind of like dig my heels in and I don't need to focus on the the breeders. Yeah, I know, calling them breeders. Um, I embarked on <laughs> like a, just a, an exploration of the anti-natalist view. While I think that the case against babies is is humorous and fun to read, I am well aware that it doesn't sound that way to everyone. Uh, so I'm I'm actually really glad that I went, you know, on this probing expedition to find more voices on the on the topic because. I cannot write this stuff. I promise you that I am not brilliant or organized or creative enough to have sat down and premeditated the flow of this episode. I found a, a New Yorker article uh, where um, someone wrote about David Benatar's new book. At the time it was new. And David Benatar is an anti-natalist philosopher. And from what I have gathered from, you know, hearing him speak in interviews and in his lectures, um, just as I have found with Scott Klusendorf, uh, just very engaging, mindful, kind, and and that's what I wanted to bring to, to this episode. In contrast to the tone of the case against babies, David Benatar is a very, what seems like to me, a very humble human being for being, you know, the head of the philosophy department and the head of the bioethics center of, a, you know, a university in the one of the biggest cities in South Africa. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad I went on the rampage, um, because it humbled me. <laughs> and so that is how I was able to, okay, let's try, you know, a different, different way to search for the pronatalist stuff. And that's how I ended up coming across the subreddit. And I also came across uh, another article. Uh, this one was in Vox from, what's, what does she do? She's a parenthood clarity therapist, which is what it sounds like. She helps people decide if they want to be parents. So not just like giving birth, but, you know, do you, do you want to take care of another human being. So very, very busy episode. 
very heavy topic, at least to me anyway. Again, I almost didn't start or do this at all because I didn't think that I could present any counterbalance to offset the tone of, of the last episode. But my humanity prevailed, and, um, and so I bring to you episode whatever number we're on. <laughs> and look at that. I am not only growing as a person, but also as a podcast host. Because I just told you everything that's going to be in this episode. You're welcome. The Tolerance Objection You shouldn't force your views on others. Next time somebody says you shouldn't impose your beliefs on others, ask, why not? Any answer he gives will be an example of his imposing his beliefs on you. In Chapter 1, Pam told Emily it was wrong to impose views on others. When it comes to abortion, every woman must decide for herself. There was no mistaking the specifics of Pam's argument. Right and wrong are relative to the individual. It's up to us to make the rules. No one has a right to judge others. It's not our place to say what's right for another person. As stated in Chapter 5, claims like these are grounded in a worldview known as moral relativism. Relativism, in its most basic form, says there are no objective moral standards, only personal preferences. Relativism, however, is seriously flawed for at least three major reasons. First, it is often self-refuting, that is to say, it cannot live by its own rules. Second, relativism cannot reasonably say why anything is wrong, including intolerance. Third, it is impossible for anyone to consistently live as a relativist. Relativism is often self-refuting. For all their talk of tolerance, relativists almost always lapse into making moral judgments. For example, when Pam said it was wrong for Emily to impose her views on others, she imposed that view on Emily. She couldn't live with her own rule. At the time, Emily was too frustrated to notice. But suppose they take up the conversation again. Here's how Emily can reply when Pam plays the tolerance card. Pam. Like I said before, I personally oppose abortion. I really do. But you go way beyond that and tell people what's right and wrong for them. You're imposing your views on them. Emily. What's wrong with that? Pam. Huh? Emily. Well, you think what I'm doing is wrong, don't you? If not, why are you correcting me? Pam. No, I just want to know why you are imposing your views on others by telling them what they should do and shouldn't do. Emily, are you saying I shouldn't do that? That it's wrong? If so, then why are you imposing that view on me? Pam, regrouping. I'm confused. All I'm trying to say is that if you don't like abortion, don't have one. But you shouldn't force your views on others. Emily, 
Is that your view? Pam, yes. Emily, then why are you forcing it on me when you know I disagree? By your own definition, that's not very tolerant, is it? Pam, what do you mean? I think women should have a choice, and you don't. It's your view that's intolerant. Emily, okay, so you think I'm wrong. What is it that you want pro-lifers like me to do? Pam, I think you should be more tolerant and let women decide for themselves. Emily, what's your own view on abortion? Pam, as I said, I dislike it, but I think every woman should decide for herself. Emily, so you're going to say that if I don't see things your way, I'm wrong, right? Tell me why you think that view is tolerant. Pam, what? Emily, Pam, with all due respect, unless I agree with you, you will not tolerate my view. That's why you keep correcting me. You speak of tolerance and respecting other views, but the minute someone takes a view different than your own, you cry foul. It seems you think tolerance is a virtue if and only if people agree with you. Relativists are often blind to their own intolerance. Once, while driving my sons to a baseball game at Dodger Stadium, a young woman in a white pickup truck began tailgating me, visibly angered about my pro-life bumper sticker that read, We can do better than abortion. She stayed on my tail for a mile or so. Finally, she pulled beside me and extended a certain part of her anatomy skyward to convey her feelings. She then cut in front of me. When I saw her bumper sticker, I couldn't stop laughing. It said, celebrate diversity. In other words, in a pluralistic society, we should tolerate the diverse views of others. Ironically, she saw no contradiction between her unwillingness to tolerate or celebrate my point of view and her bumper sticker that said we should tolerate all points of view. That is what I mean when I say relativists can't help making moral judgments. Sometimes those judgments are couched deeply in the language of tolerance, making them difficult to spot. Shortly after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, New York Times journalist Thomas Friedman wrote an op-ed piece saying that the real war we're fighting is not against terrorism or bin Laden, but against exclusive religious truth claims of any kind. Christians, Jews, and Muslims who make these claims are guilty of single-minded fanaticism, in his view. A more enlightened culture should realize that God speaks multiple languages and is not exhausted by just one faith. All religious claims are equally true. Notice the inherent contradictions in Friedman's own exclusive truth claim. First, if all religions are equally true, why is he correcting Christians for holding a view different than his? It's not like they have much wiggle room. Jesus didn't say there were many ways to heaven, just one, him. Nevertheless, Friedman is demanding that Christians rewrite their faith as he dictates. This is not religious tolerance, but a classic case of intolerance. His message to Christians is, agree with me or else. Who is the real absolutist here? Second, Friedman's own religious view self-destructs. If all religions are true, then Christianity is true. But Christianity says that other religions are not true. Either Christianity is right about that, or it's mistaken. Either way, 
all religions can't be true. Relativism can't say why anything is wrong, including intolerance. Pam has a real problem. If morals are up to us, then who is she to say that Emily should be tolerant? Perhaps Emily wants to be intolerant. What's wrong with that? Pam really can't say why anything is wrong. Suppose Emily asks, Pam, is it wrong to torture toddlers for fun? What is she going to say in reply? Well, I wouldn't want to do that to my kid. That's a lame response, because Emily can shoot back with, Pam, that's not what I asked you. I didn't ask if you liked torturing toddlers for fun. I asked if it was wrong to torture them for fun. If it is up to us to decide, rather than discover, right and wrong, there is no real difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. They just had different preferences. Mother Teresa liked to help people. Hitler liked to kill them. Who are we to judge? But we can't help judging. And that's the point. It's impossible to live as a relativist. As C.S. Lewis points out, a person who claims there is no objective morality will complain if you break a promise or cut in line. Relativists inevitably take moral positions just like the rest of us. Consider this email sent to me by a blogger named Kevin. The problem is that anti-choicers are invariably intolerant of the pro-choice position. It's not enough for them not to favor abortion in their own cases, or even to make themselves a nuisance by bugging other people who make other choices for themselves. Inevitably, they seek to force others to live by the values of the anti-choicers through legal restrictions, harassment, and often violence or murder. That's the difference between tolerance and intolerance. Between holding a view and using force to make others comply with it. That's the difference more anti-choicers need to understand. So, is Kevin saying pro-lifers are wrong to live out their convictions in the public square? If so, who is he to impose that view on us? And what exactly does he want pro-lifers like me to do? Become an abortion choicer like him? Moreover, Kevin has it all wrong. Pro-lifers aren't imposing their views with intimidation, except for the very few who resort to violence. They're proposing them in hopes that the American electorate, at some level, will vote them into law. That's called democracy. Yet Kevin's own tolerant position seems to be agree with me or get out of the public square. In short, I understand his position perfectly. We pro-lifers can believe anything we want, as long as we don't act as if our view is true. As I wrote him at the time, his own view is anything but tolerant. Privately, you'll let me and other pro-lifers say that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, or dependency should be killed without justification. But if we try to act on our convictions through the democratic process, you scream foul. In the real world of politics and law, the only view you seem willing to tolerate is your own. At the same time, do you really think abortion choicers don't force their own views? Try running that by private medical schools, who are now being told by pro-choice advocates, you must provide or refer for abortion training regardless of your personal moral convictions. Try running it by the 29 states where the people, acting through their duly elected officials, pass laws against partial birth abortion, only to be told by the federal courts, with the blessing of 
pro-choice groups, you must allow that procedure. Kevin, with all due respect, why not abandon your perch of alleged moral neutrality and admit that you'd like to restrict the advance of the pro-life worldview as much as I'd like to restrict the advance of the abortion choice one? Everyone takes a position here, and you'd like yours to win and mine to lose. Despite Kevin's protestations to the contrary, this is not a debate between anti-choice and pro-choice, or tolerance versus intolerance. I'm sure he and I are both anti-choice, intolerant, on many things, like spousal abuse, racial discrimination, and the dumping of toxic wastes into our rivers. He is also anti-choice, I assume, on the question of killing toddlers for fun. At the same time, we're both pro-choice on women choosing their own husbands, careers, pets, and cars that they drive, to name just a few things. Thus, the real issue that separates us is not choice versus anti-choice, but what is the unborn? Is he a member of the human family? Until that question is answered, it's premature to preach tolerance. The case for not being born. The antinatalist philosopher David Benatar argues that it would be better if no one had children ever again by Joshua Rothman for The New Yorker. David Benatar may be the world's most pessimistic philosopher. An antinatalist, he believes that life is so bad, so painful, that human beings should stop having children for reasons of compassion. While good people go to great lengths to spare their children from suffering, few of them seem to notice that the one and only guaranteed way to prevent all the suffering of their children is not to bring those children into existence in the first place. He writes, in a 2006 book called Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. In Benatar's view, reproducing is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible, not just because a horrible fate can befall anyone, but because life itself is permeated by badness. In part for this reason, he thinks that the world would be a better place if sentient life disappeared altogether. For a work of academic philosophy, Better Never to Have Been has found an unusually wide audience. It has 3.9 stars on Goodreads, where one reviewer calls it required reading for folks who believe that procreation is justified. A few years ago, Nick Pizzolatto, the screenwriter behind True Detective, read the book and made Rust Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character, a nihilistic antinatalist. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution, Cole says. When Pizzolatto mentioned the book to the press, Benatar, who sees his own views as more thoughtful and humane than Cole's, emerged from an otherwise reclusive life to clarify them in interviews. Now, he has published The Human Predicament, a candid guide to life's biggest questions, a refinement, expansion, and contextualization of his antinatalist thinking. The book begins with an epigraph from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It promises to provide grim answers to questions such as, do our lives have meaning? And would it be better if we could live forever? Benatar was born in South Africa in 1966, 
He is the head of the philosophy department at the University of Cape Town, where he also directs the university's bioethics center, which was founded by his father, Solomon Benatar, a global health expert. Benatar dedicated Better Never to Have Been to my parents, even though they brought me into existence. Beyond these bare facts, little information about him is available online. There are no pictures of Benatar on the internet. YouTube videos of his lectures consist only of PowerPoint slides. One video, titled, What Does David Benatar Look Like?, zooms in on a grainy photograph, taken from the back of a lecture hall, until an arrow labeled, David Benatar, appears, indicating the abstract, pixelated head of a man in a baseball cap. After finishing the human predicament, I wrote to Benatar to ask if we could meet. He readily agreed. Then, after reading a few of my other pieces, followed up with a note. I see that you aim to portray the person you interview, in addition to his or her work, he wrote. One pertinent fact about me is that I am a very private person who would be mortified to be written about in the kind of detail I've seen in the other interviews. I would thus decline to answer questions I would find too personal. I would be similarly uncomfortable with a photograph of me being used. I understand entirely if you would rather not proceed with the interview under these circumstances. If, however, you would be happy to conduct an interview that recognized this aspect of me, I would be delighted. Undoubtedly, Benatar is a private person by nature, but his anonymity also serves a purpose. It prevents readers from psychologizing him and attributing his views to depression, trauma, or some other aspect of his personality. He wants his arguments to be confronted in themselves. Sometimes people ask, do you have children? He told me later. He speaks calmly and evenly in a South African accent, and I say, I don't see why that's relevant. If I do, I'm a hypocrite, but my arguments could still be right. When he told me that he's had antinatalist views since he was very young, I asked, how young? A child, he said, after a pause. He smiled uncomfortably. This was exactly the kind of personal question he preferred not to answer. Benatar and I met at the World Trade Center, where the New Yorker has its offices. He is small and trim, with an elfin face, and he was neatly dressed in trousers and a lavender sweater. I recognized him by his baseball cap. On the building's 64th floor, we settled into a pair of plush chairs arranged near windows with panoramic views of Manhattan, the Hudson on the left, the East River on the right, the skyscrapers of Midtown in the distance. Social scientists often ask people about their level of happiness. A typical survey asks respondents to rate their lives on a scale of 1, the worst possible life for you, to 10, the best possible life for you. According to the 2017 World Happiness Report, Americans surveyed between 2014 and 2016 rated their lives, on average, 6.99, less happy than the lives of Canadians, 7.32, and happier than those citizens of Sudan, 4.14. Another survey reads, Taking all things together, would you say you are, one, very happy, two, rather happy, three, not very happy, or four, not happy at all? In recent years, in countries such as India, Russia, and Zimbabwe, responses to this question have been trending upward. In 1998, 93% of Americans claimed to be very or rather happy, 
By 2014, after the Great Recession, the number had fallen, but only slightly, to 91%. People, in short, say that life is good. Benatar believes that they are mistaken. The quality of human life is, contrary to what many people think, actually quite appalling, he writes in The Human Predicament. He provides an escalating list of woes designed to prove that even the lives of happy people are worse than they think. We're almost always hungry or thirsty, he writes. When we're not, we must go to the bathroom. We often experience thermal discomfort. We are too hot or too cold or are tired and unable to nap. We suffer from itches, allergies, and colds, menstrual pains, or hot flashes. Life is a procession of frustrations and irritations, waiting in traffic, standing in line, filling out forms, Forced to work, we often find our jobs exhausting. Even those who enjoy their work may have professional aspirations that remain unfulfilled. Many lonely people remain single, while those who marry fight and divorce. People want to be, look, and feel younger, and yet they age relentlessly. They have high hopes for their children, and these are often thwarted when, for example, the children prove to be a disappointment in some way or other. When those close to us suffer, we suffer at the sight of it. When they die, we are bereft. The knee-jerk responses to observations like these is, if life is so bad, why don't you just kill yourself? Benatar devotes a 43-page chapter to proving that death only exacerbates our problems. Life is bad, but so is death, he concludes. Of course, life is not bad in every way. Neither is death bad in every way. However, both life and death are, in crucial respects, awful. Together, they constitute an existential vice, the wretched grip that enforces our predicament. It's better, he argues, not to enter into the predicament in the first place. People sometimes ask themselves whether life is worth living. Benatar thinks that it's better to ask sub-questions. Is life worth continuing? Yes, because death is bad. Is life worth starting? No. Benatar is far from the only antinatalist. Books such as Sarah Perry's Every Cradle is a Grave and Thomas Ligotti's The Conspiracy Against the Human Race have also found audiences. There are many misanthropic antinatalists. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, for example, has thousands of members who believe that for environmental reasons, human beings should cease to exist. For misanthropic antinatalists, the problem isn't life, it's us. Benatar, by contrast, is a compassionate antinatalist. His thinking parallels that of the philosopher Thomas Metzinger, who studies consciousness and artificial intelligence. Metzinger espouses digital antinatalism, arguing that it would be wrong to create artificially conscious computer programs because doing so would increase the amount of suffering in the world. The same argument could apply to human beings. Like a boxer who has practiced his counters, Benatar has anticipated a range of objections. Many people suggest that the best experiences in life, love, beauty, discovery, and so on, make up for the bad ones. To this, Benatar replies that pain is worse than pleasure is good. Pain lasts longer. There's such a thing as chronic pain, but there's no such thing as chronic pleasure, he said. It's also more powerful. 
Would you trade five minutes of the worst pain imaginable for five minutes of the greatest pleasure? Moreover, there's an abstract sense in which missing out on good experiences isn't as bad as having bad ones. For an existing person, the presence of bad things is bad, and the presence of good things is good, Benatar explained. But compare that with a scenario in which that person never existed. Then, the absence of the bad would be good, but the absence of the good wouldn't be bad, because there'd be nobody to be deprived of those good things. This asymmetry completely stacks the deck against existence, he continued, because it suggests that all the unpleasantness and all the misery and all the suffering could be over without any real cost. Some people argue that talk of pain and pleasure misses the point. Even if life isn't good, it's meaningful. Benatar replies that, in fact, human life is cosmically meaningless. We exist in an indifferent universe, perhaps even a multiverse, and are subject to blind and purposeless natural forces. In the absence of cosmic meaning, only terrestrial meaning remains. And he writes there's something circular about arguing that the purpose of humanity's existence is that individual humans should help one another. Benatar also rejects the argument that struggle and suffering in themselves can lend meaning to existence. I don't believe that suffering gives meaning, Benatar said. I think that people try to find meaning in suffering because the suffering is otherwise so gratuitous and unbearable. It's true, he said, that Nelson Mandela generated meaning through the way he responded to suffering, but that's not to defend the conditions in which he lived. I asked Benatar why the proper response to his arguments wasn't to strive to make the world a better place, the possible creation of a better world in the future. The possible creation of a better world in the future, he told me, hardly justifies the suffering of people in the present. At any rate, a dramatically improved world is impossible. It'll never happen. The lessons never seem to get learned. They never seem to get learned. Maybe the odd individual will learn them, but you still see this madness around you, he said. You can say, for goodness sake, can't you see how you're making the same mistake humans have made before? Can't we do this differently? But it doesn't happen. Ultimately, he said, unpleasantness and suffering are too deeply written into the structure of sentient life to be eliminated. His voice grew more urgent. His eyes teared up. We're asked to accept what is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that people and other beings have to go through what they go through, and there's almost nothing they can do about it. In an ordinary conversation, I would have murmured something reassuring. In this case, I didn't know what to say. Benatar had selected a vegan restaurant for lunch, and we set out to walk there along the Hudson. At the end of V.C. Street, we passed the Irish Hunger Memorial, a quarter acre of soil transplanted from Ireland in 2001 to commemorate the millions who had died during the country's Great Famine. At Benatar's suggestion, we spent a few minutes exploring and reading the historical quotes displayed in the entryway. The famine lasted seven years. Recalling it, one man wrote, It dwells in my memory as one long night of sorrow. It was a warm day in Battery Park. Mothers picnicked with their small children on the grass. A group of co-workers played table tennis. Down by the water, couples strolled hand in hand. There were runners on the path, shirtless men with muscular chests. 
women in stylish workout gear. Do you ever feel a dissonance between your beliefs and your environment? I asked. I'm not opposed to people having fun or in denial that life contains good things, Benatar said, laughing. I glanced over to see that he had removed his sweater and was now in shirt sleeves. His cap appeared not to have moved. We reached the spot where, eight weeks later, a 29-year-old man in a van would kill eight people and injure 11 others. Like everyone else, Benatar finds his views disturbing. He has, therefore, ambivalent feelings about sharing them. He wouldn't walk into a church, stride to the pulpit, and declare that God doesn't exist. Similarly, he doesn't relish the idea of becoming an ambassador for antinatalism. Life, he says, is already unpleasant enough. He reassures himself that because his books are philosophical and academic, they will be read only by those who seek them out. He hears from readers who are grateful to find their own secret thoughts expressed. One man with several children read, Better never to have been, then told Benatar that he believed having them had been a terrible mistake. People suffering from terrible mental and physical afflictions write to say they wish they had never existed. He also hears from people who share his views and are disabled by them. I'm just filled with sadness for people like that, he said in a soft voice. They have an accurate view of reality, and they're paying the price for it. I asked Benatar whether he ever found his own thoughts overwhelming. He smiled uncomfortably. Another personal question, and said, Writing helps. He doesn't imagine that antinatalism could ever be widely adopted. It runs counter to too many biological drives. Still, for him, it's a source of hope. The madness of the world as a whole. What can you or I do about that? he said while we walked, but every couple or every person can decide not to have a child. That's an immense amount of suffering that's avoided, which is all to the good. When friends have children, he must watch his words. I'm torn, he said. Having a child is pretty horrible, given the predicament in which it will find itself. On the other hand, optimism makes life more bearable. Some years ago, when a fellow philosopher told him that she was pregnant, his response was muted. Come on, she insisted. You have to be happy for me. Benatar consulted his conscience, then said, I am happy for you. At lunch, we sat next to a little girl and her mother. The girl was around eight years old, wearing a dress and holding a book. Do you want to take these home? Her mother asked, pointing to some french fries. Yes, the girl said. My conversation with Benatar continued, but I found it hard to talk about antinatalism while sitting next to the mother and daughter. We spent much of our lunch amiably discussing our work habits. On the street, we shook hands. I'm just going to walk around a bit, Benatar said. He planned to wander the West Village before heading to the airport. I walked south and, near the World Trade Center, descended into the Oculus, the vast sepulchral mall and train station that is replaced the one destroyed in the 9-11 attacks. With its towering, spine-like roof and white marble ribs, it is part skeleton, part cathedral. Standing on the escalator, I watched as a woman with one arm in her jacket struggled to insert the other. An overweight businessman, his ears plugged with earbuds, brushed past me, jostling me with his briefcase. As he reached the bottom, he held the woman's coat, and she slipped into it. This is a thread 
on the subreddit casual conversation where the original poster of the question asks people to share the reasons why they want to have children or be a parent or you know all of, all of that I did like a filter on the top uh, comments picked out a few and now we're just we're gonna read them uh, I'm also not going to be interjecting any of my personal opinions or like sharing or interjecting anything um, into these comments. I'm just going to read them as they are and move on because this is not about me. This is about people who want to have kids. They deserve their 15 minutes. So no opinions will be shared. This is just me reading their comments. Hopefully without any like judgy inflections. <laughs> All right. Conversating uh, posts. I just always wanted to be a parent. That desire has always been there, though I have never wanted to be married. LOL. Having a spouse never factored into it. I also never really wanted to physically have a child. I developed a disorder in my mid-twenties that makes having a child risky for both me and any hypothetical child. I want to raise my kids, not potentially die in childbirth. Also, babies scare me, and I prefer older kids. So I adopted through foster care. I have two kids now, who I adopted at 5 and 13. I still foster, and will adopt again if the opportunity arises, and it's a good fit. For all of the kids. I'll probably continue to foster and adopt as long as I can. I just like parenting. It's hard, especially when you're raising kids from traumatic backgrounds, but it's so worth it to see them grow and heal, discover their passions, and become the people they're meant to be. Steen, TNS. Hard to tell. I am a father of a six-year-old girl, and back then, I just knew it was the right time for me, and I was, and still am, totally committed. It is an instinct, somehow. It kicks in, or it doesn't, but I totally get it, that not everyone wants children. The original poster replies, That's really curious. Can I ask what made you feel so committed, then, if you know? I rely on my brain more than my instincts. This leads me to having a tendency to overthink and let that overshadow my feelings a lot. So it's interesting hearing people talk about how they felt. Steen, TNS, replies, Well, there are two factors. Of course, it's important to have a stable life, good job, safe income, to have had enough time to fart, to party, oh my gosh, to have had enough time for party and stuff. These are the brain factors on the other hand, I had the right partner. I always was a family guy, and the plan to have kids, and the plan to have kids somewhere in the future. These were the more instinct factors. The thought of having a kid, including all downsides, just felt right for me and our lives were on the right track. If I only relied on the brain thinking part, I guess there would be no reason to have a kid. A lot of stress, costs, risks, time. So I think it is never just a rational decision. As mentioned, 
You just know when the time is right. You can't force it. And some people never have the interest in having kids, which is perfectly fine. I think it's stupid to tell people you have to. Kids give so much back. You don't want to be lonely. You'll change your mind, etc. But that's what a lot of people hear when they don't want kids. Miss Malaise writes, I never wanted kids. I never liked kids. I didn't even like them when I was a kid. However, my partner wanted kids. And I told him I couldn't promise anything, but we agreed to revisit it in a few years and go from there. He realized he didn't need to have kids, and I realized I didn't hate the idea, but I still wasn't keen. Well, we found ourselves accidentally pregnant last year, and hormones took over my senses. I immediately fell in love with my baby and the idea of being his mom. I was terrified, but excited. Unfortunately, we lost him at 35 weeks. I felt as though my entire being was torn away from me and that I'd never feel whole again. I had no idea how much he made me want to be a mom and I will always love and cherish him for that and the time we had together. We later decided that we absolutely wanted to try again after lots of therapy and I'm currently pregnant with our daughter. She is very much loved and wanted too. So in a roundabout answer to, to the question you posed, it was something that just kind of happened, I guess. Life, hormones, experiences, all things that made me decide that I wanted to raise and love a child. That said, I still find random children and their crappy parents annoying. So some things never change, I guess. Programmer whole. Personally, I'd like to help someone develop and also share experiences with them as they grow. Problem with me is that I'm absolutely horrendous with women, so I may have to adopt. LOL. That is so Gerard. Says, I never thought I wanted kids, but when I was 25, my dad was in a coma for three months whilst I sat by his bedside with my mom and sister. I realized that I wouldn't want my future wife to be sat alone if similar happened to me. Fast forward 12 years, and my son was born, and all the cliches were true. I'd never felt a love like it, and I'd happily have 10 kids now if I could afford it. Ms. Cardeno, I'm 29, and my wife is 32. We always wanted kids, and had our first one last year. For us, we wanted to raise children. We also did a lot in our 20s. Tons of parties, new experiences, visited 13 countries, etc. So it felt like a good next experience we wanted to do. We are also financially stable, so it made sense. Plus, I always wanted to be a mom. I don't know why. I just love caring for things, I guess. I've always had cats and dogs, so kids seem like a natural next step. Also, I like the idea of being old and having kids to talk to. I know they're not guaranteed to be in our lives, but it's worth the risk to me. That Stacy girl. I didn't want children until I was married. I felt like our family wasn't complete. It was weird, as though I was missing something I didn't have. I had my first child at 25, and my second at 26. It was challenging with my oldest having cerebral palsy and my youngest being on the spectrum. 
But like right now, my son is sitting next to me, showing me memes. I love it. It's the day-to-day -day stuff that's amazing. I get fulfillment from it. Watching their personalities develop and evolving into their own person is amazing to me. My oldest son passed a few years ago, and it was heart-shattering. I would have done anything for him not to have had a lifelong disability, but the time we did have together is filled with great memories. I help people decide if they want to have kids. Here's my advice. A parenthood clarity therapist explains how she helps fence sitters make one of the most important decisions of their lives by Anne Davidman. Quote, I'm afraid of losing my partner because he wants kids and I don't know what I want. I think I don't want them. Quote, I'm afraid of losing my identity, freedom, and comfort if I have children. Afraid of regretting it if I don't. Quote, I've always wanted to have a baby, but is it even ethical knowing the environmental and political climate? Quote, I need some peace and clarity from the torture of sitting on the fence too long. This is just a sample of the questions, fears, and concerns I hear all the time from my clients. I'm a therapist who has dedicated my life to helping people figure out if they want to have children. I've been doing this for 30 years and have seen more clients than I can count of all stripes. Men, women, single, married, and partnered people. People just out of a relationship and people just starting a relationship. People from ages 28 to 59. Our goal is to help people make possibly the biggest decision of their lives, whether or not they want to become a parent. Most people who contact me say they feel like they're the only one who can't decide. I let them know immediately they're not the only one. Our society allows little room for ambivalence around this topic. That's because we, unfortunately, live in a pro-natalist world where the unspoken message is that everyone should want children and should have them. The end. While the burgeoning child-free movement rejects this notion, as it should, the loudest voices from that group tend to articulate an assured decision to be child-free. They deserve everyone's respect, but for many people, it's hard to know what they really want. This can add another layer of shame because it can often seem like everyone else came to their decision with ease. Many assume that a time will come for each of us, at which point we'll just know. Even though that is the case for some, it's a myth to think that it's that way for everyone. The sad truth is that most people who reach out to me have struggled with this decision for 10, 15, 20 years. That pains me to no end. Some people don't realize they're ambivalent because they've walked around with an assumption of either, of course I'll have kids one day, or I'm never going to have kids. Then one day, the decision has to be made due to age or time or a relationship is about to end or begin over this issue. From desperation, they have to make a decision. Fear, instead of desire, runs the show. Operating on fear is a lonely, excruciating process that leaves many immobilized. But when a decision is made from a place of desire, joy, or clarity, the experience is quite different. 
The first thing I try to make very clear to all of my clients is that deciding to have children, raise children, or live a child-free life is a journey that's unique to each person making those decisions. No one can tell you what's right for you, yet society, family, and your own assumptions continue to influence these decisions and sometimes even demand a particular choice. Of course, many stumble into a situation one way or the other. There are those who don't want to be parents but end up loving the experience, and those who want children but never find themselves having them and love that experience as well. It's wonderful when that happens, but chance is not the path to a fulfilled life. Making a conscious decision only after knowing what you want and why you want it is what real freedom is all about. In my opinion, if everyone paused and pondered whether or not motherhood or fatherhood was for them, no matter how certain or uncertain they felt about the answer, the experience they would have coming to an ultimate decision would feel more expansive and have fewer fears attached to it. The second thing I impress on my clients is that the main reason they feel stuck no matter their circumstance, is because they're trying to figure out what they want, their heart's desire about parenthood, and what they're going to do about it, make a decision. At the same time, the result is gridlock in your mind, and you cannot think your way out. It's important to know that a person's desire and decision are not always the same, nor is the goal for them to be the same. The goal is to know your truth about each of them. You may want to become a parent and decide not to for a variety of reasons. You may realize you wanted to have had children by now, but decide not to because it's not what you want to do with your life at this point. A decision that doesn't change the fact that you wanted to be a parent. Deciding to have kids may not have been your first choice. But you decide conscientiously to become a parent for other reasons and not from a resentful place. The most efficient way to make a decision is to actually put that decision-making pressure aside temporarily and focus only on your desire. Can you imagine an oasis where fear, judgment, and shame don't exist, where it's not even considered? What if there is a place where there is no right or wrong, good or bad answer? Sound nice? I believe one needs to have their own private, uncensored process in that kind of environment to find out what they want. I have had the great honor of providing that environment, and I want to help you create that environment for yourself. For 30 years, I have led the undecided through a structured and ordered process where they gain the clarity they're seeking. The cost of not deciding can be emotionally excruciating, with plans put on hold, which can have financial implications, especially for women who hesitate to move forward in their careers just in case they want children. But there are ways to get unstuck and move forward. Here are a few tips to get you started. Number one, begin with deciding to take a designated break, one to three months, from any decision about the topic with your partner. If you're single, stop ruminating about it and talking about it with others. During this time, decide not to know what you want or what you're going to do. No more thinking, one way or the other. Number two, 
except that indecision is more complex than what's on the surface and not because something is wrong with you. Number three, stop trying to figure this out by making a pros and cons list. It will keep you stuck. If you're doing it for the third or umpteenth time and you're not getting anywhere, then doing it one more time is not the solution. Number four, make a list of three decisions that you've made because you knew in your gut it was the right decision for you. Write a few sentences on each one, describing the sensation of how good it felt to have made them. This is the sensation you deserve to experience when you're deciding yes to parenthood or yes to a child-free life. Number five, create separation between desire and decision by putting the decision to the sidelines until clarity of your desire is known. To do this, make a list of all your fears related to this decision. Then list all the specifics or externals in your life that you can't stop thinking about. Age, health, career, relationship status, etc. Then put these two lists in an envelope and put that envelope out of sight. Do not look at it or entertain anything in it until you have clarity of your desire and you know why you want what you want. The why is important, not because you owe anyone an explanation, but because you need to know what is driving your desire from the inside out so that you can be honest with yourself. Number six, do some old-fashioned stream-of-consciousness writing with these prompts. Prompt A, I've always thought that by now my life would look like, then read what you just wrote and write how it feels to read it. Prompt B, what verbal and nonverbal messages did you receive from your parents, community, religion, and society about you becoming a parent? Prompt C, make the decision of yes to having or raising a baby and live with that decision for five days. During that time, write daily about how you feel about the decision you are pretending to have made. Don't bargain with the decision. The more you can buy in to having made the decision, the more information you'll receive about yourself. Prompt D. Make the decision to live a child-free life for five days. During that time, write daily about how you feel about the decision you are pretending to have made. Don't bargain with the decision. The more you can trick your mind into the decision being made, the more information you'll receive about yourself. Prompt E. What would it take, or what would have to happen, in order for you to say yes to parenthood and feel good about it? Prompt F. What would it take? or what would have to happen in order for you to say yes to a child-free life and feel good about it. This time of exploration, without the pressure of having to make a decision, will help you discover your honest desire. Once you know what drives it from the inside out, you're freed up to make a conscious decision about what you're going to do. To entertain a decision prematurely, without complete clarity of desire, will only make your decision-making process more complicated than it needs to be, and delay the peace and calm you so deserve. 
It's also important to remember that at the end of the day, even when you're making conscious decisions, you still have to accept the universal truth that you cannot control the outcome of how your life will be, with or without children. Trying to do so by playing out every scenario will only cause you to suffer because it's fundamentally unachievable. What is 100% within your control is to trust that you'll be okay no matter the outcome and you'll get help if you need to. You can only know how you want your life to unfold and do everything you can to have it unfold that way. However, if your imagined life does not come true, that doesn't mean the story ends there and now you have to suffer. Parenthood is neither a destiny nor a debate. There is no single right choice. Only you can know what's right for you. You are the helmsperson of your life. So final thoughts on this episode. I think it's pretty evident that people disagree. Pretty evident, not just from this one episode, but from the moment you start thinking of these things in probably your adolescence. Uh, that people disagree fundamentally about a lot of things. But morals, I mean, about what is moral. And I think because of that, moral relativism tries to come in and say, since no one can be found objectively right or wrong, then everyone should tolerate the ideas of others, even on hot takes like abortion or being born. I think they are subjective. Some people would feel justified in doing a thing that is so obviously wrong in someone else's eyes, and and I'm sure they're thinking, like, how could you possibly do something so heinous? But that person feels justified And I don't think moral relativism comes in to try and, it shouldn't anyway, come in and try to say who's right and who's wrong. Because by definition, no one can be found objectively right or wrong. And so because no one can be objectively right or wrong, everyone should tolerate the ideas of others. It doesn't say to accept those views as your own. It just tells you to consider that your idea may not be the only idea out there. I don't think it's here to say anything is right or wrong. I don't think that's its job. I think its job is born of reminding us that we all fundamentally disagree And that we should all still listen to each other because in listening to each other, we might come to terms with, you know, even though it's not right for me, I could see why it's right for them. I really think that's the gist of it. I don't think it's any deeper than that. I don't think it's the way that laws or societies are built. Obviously, that comes from somewhere else. (laughs) It definitely helps you to realize that your way is not the only way, which I think some people can get lost in and think that they are truly right. And it's like, well, hold on. (laughs) 
how do you know that? (laughs) Are you everyone? Have you walked in everyone's shoes? And I don't think that antinatalism judges those who bring forth fruit and multiply. (laughs) Especially if you're what what that article said, compassionate, a compassionate antinatalist. I know that I don't personally, I mean, I judge a little bit. Let's be, let's be honest. I, I cringe a little bit, but I don't hold any hostility for people who have babies or want to be parents. Um, I wouldn't do it, but... <laughs> But uh, that's because I think it's immoral for me. I would not bring more consciousness or sentient life into the world on purpose. If I could help it, I would, I would try not to do that. I would try to avoid bringing more life. And I think, as with all philosophy to a degree, it simply states for the individual who believes, you know, that there's enough people on the planet, that it would be immoral for them to reproduce more consciousness because it intrinsically produces more suffering. But I don't use that as an argument for other people to stop doing it. Um, but there's a lot of people who can live with the decision to procreate, um, humans, dog breeding, uh, factory beef and chicken for the consumption of those humans and dogs, etc. I'm not even asking anyone to agree with me because I know that we're both right in our own eyes. I would simply ask that you listen the next time someone wants to share with you. I think there is some, something to be said for if someone doesn't give you the same courtesy to listen to you, um, then maybe that person shouldn't be in your life that often. (laughs) And, And really listen without waiting for your turn to speak or debate or argue Listen because it just lessens the suffering of others when they feel heard. And I know that that's, you know, there's exceptions to all the rules. There are some people who might try to hold your mind hostage with always unloading their grievances or whatever. I think we should all be a little judicial in what we consider right or wrong for ourselves. Like... Don't just believe everything you hear or everything you think. Let go of, you know, toxic people. You should be absolutely lucid and careful of the ideas and ideologies that you agree with and align yourself with. And I think you do that by being curious. Be curious about their roots. Ask questions and and also getting a little comfortable with not knowing the answer for a while or be okay with changing your mind back and forth because 
we're all growing in our knowing every day. Every time we put ourselves in just a little bit of an uncomfortable spot, we give ourselves the opportunity to learn about ourselves, even through listening to others. Now, is that me imposing my view on you? Sure, if it's right for you. In the wise words of Jerry Springer, (laughs) till next time, take care of yourself and each other.